We're reading from Ezra chapter 4. And when the enemies of Jordan, Judah, sorry, and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Sarababel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Ezrahaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the people around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Bishlam, Mithradath, Tabil, and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. The letter was written in Aramaic script and in the Aramaic language. Rahum, the commanding officer of Shimshar, the secretary wrote a letter against Jerusalem and Exarces, the king, as follows. Rahum, the commanding officer, and Shimshar, the secretary, together with the rest of their associates, the judges, officials, administrators, over the people from Persia, Europe and Babylon, the Alamites of Susa, and the other people whom the great and honorable Ashurbanipal deported and settled in the city of Samaria and elsewhere in Trans Euphrates. This is a copy of the letter they sent to him, to King Exarches. From your servants, the men of trans -Euphrates. The king should know that the people who come up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid, and eventually the royal re revenues will suffer. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace, and it's not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king 
so that a search may, may be made in the archives of your predecessors. In these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to the kings and provinces, a place with a long history of sedition. That is why this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in Trans-Euphrates. The king sent this reply to Rehum, the commanding officer, Shimshar, the secretary, and the rest of their associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates. Greetings. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence, issued an order, and a search was made. It was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole trans-Euphrates and taxes, tribute, and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interest? As soon as a copy of the letter of King Artaxerus was read to Rehum and Shimshah, the secretary, and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Thus the work of the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Wojciech was born in 1899 in Dexing, Zhangzi. Her father died when she was six years old leaving the family with considerable debts. And she remembers when uh, some thugs came in and forcibly made her mother put her fingerprint on a document and took away her toddler uh, younger sister as payment for the debts. They took away the daughter. Well, not very long after that, Weiche uh, fell seriously ill with malaria and various parasites. And so she, she had this high fever, and some friends insisted that she go to the hospital that had been set up by foreign missionaries in her area. And so she went. And Weiche frequently there had night terrors and would uh, scream out in her feverous delirium uh, for her father, her dead father. And one of the doctors there told her about a heavenly father that was hers, who loved her. Uh, and the girl begged the doctor, please, would you take me to him? And the doctor said to her, only Jesus can lead you to him. And upon hearing that, Weiche cried out her first prayer, oh, Jesus, please lead me to the Father. And the doctor had preached the gospel to her, and Weiche immediately believed it. Well, they, later on, as uh, Weiche's health improved, the doctor gave the mother and uh, this young girl um, shelter 
and a job while convincing the, the mother to send Weiche to school at a um, mission school. Well, shortly thereafter, the mother decided she wanted to be a Christian as well, and she wanted to be baptized as well. And Weiche said, well, if my mother's being baptized, I want to be baptized. She was nine years old by this point, but she was considered too young by the church. She was examined and uh, found to, to know what she was doing, but they said, do it next year when you're a bit older. And so she waited a year, and she was examined again. And again, they said, you're too young. And she was examined again and again. They refused. And she said to them, Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Why will you refuse me? And the next day, the pastor baptized her. Other adults in the church afterwards criticized her for her willfulness. You shouldn't have been baptized that day. The pastor let you leak through because you're so very naughty they said to her. Her Christian faith also greatly displeased her family. Her uh, relatives saw that she and her mother had become Christians and that they refused now to worship at the ancestral idols and perform rituals for the spirits there. They were accused of being irreverent and immoral for working with foreigners and worshiping foreign gods. And aunts took the liberty of beating Wiche with a stick representing her forefathers, she said. She heaped upon her words of guilt, bringing up the memory of her dead father and how she dishonored him by not worshiping him. Still, the girl remained faithful to Jesus and refused to bend the knee to idols. She grew up with a desire to spread the gospel and attended a Bible school to become a missionary herself. Well, 30 years later, in 1949, the People's Republic of China was founded, and a new era of hardship began for Christians. When many foreign missionaries fled the country, Weiche was left in charge of uh, a, um, uh, an orphanage to manage the work there that was supported by churches in Hong Kong and churches in the U.S. And it was those foreign alliances that then created legal problems for Weiche in the years to come. She was first arrested on a Sunday in 1949 and falsely accused of harboring enemy spies at the orphanage. As the, at the police headquarters, she had brought her psalm book with her and she began to sing psalms in the police headquarters. And she said, uh, Christians are worshiping in churches and I'll worship wherever I'm at as well. Well, that evening she was released due to lack of evidence. She was next arrested a few years later, this time 60 guards plundered the orphanage and, and stole the, the livestock that they had and the resources that they had, and they put in new managers over these orphans. And these new managers wouldn't allow the orphans to pray before meals. If they disobeyed, they wouldn't receive their allotment of rice and food. And so, very quickly, the, the children stopped praying, but Weiche didn't. She was accused uh, of spying for the Americans, of stealing from the orphanage, and of killing 18 babies. But after being imprisoned in harsh conditions for over a year and suffering permanent damage to her health, uh, she was released due to lack of evidence. We'll pick up Weiche's story, but uh, Ezra's story is a story of persistent opposition against the people of God. The people of God had returned 
from exile in Babylon to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple there. And last week we saw to their great excitement that the foundations of the temple were laid. They had reestablished the sacrifices and uh, were worshiping God in the way that they knew they ought to from the scriptures. And they relayed the foundations. And God was clearly doing a new thing among them. It was a really exciting time for them. They were shouting in, in praise and celebrating in song. They were acting as though the work had already been accomplished. And that showed a certain amount of faith, I think. But this week's reading shows us that they weren't there yet. This week we see the reality of opposition. Wherever God is at work, that is where you will find God's enemies at work, trying to oppose him, diligently seeking ways to discourage and derail and destroy the people of God. For those seeking to follow and obey God, it's never easy, and it's rarely a story of uh, unhalting progress. It's almost always three steps forward, two steps back in the Christian life. You make progress, you hit a setback. You grow in faith, you get knocked back. The challenge of faith is to trust God through opposition and to persevere year after year. Stay the course. Well, in this morning's reading, we see the opposition the returnees faced. And we're given a glimpse of the opposition we should expect. The enemies of God, whether they are dark spiritual forces or just other people who are opposed to God's work in the world, are not terribly creative. They continue doing these very things to this day, millennia, uh, many millennia later. So if we pay attention to the ways that they discouraged, derailed, and destroyed God's people in the past, we will be better prepared. That's my contention to you this morning. So first, uh, the first way that God's enemies work against his people is God's enemies try to infiltrate the people of God. We see that in verses 1 to 3. At the end of chapter 3, God's people were excited about what he was doing. They were shouting and celebrating so loudly, we were told, that the people around heard. And who around them heard? Well, no one less than their enemies, verse 1 says. They were the first to respond to the joyful noise among God's people. Though um, we only know that they were enemies because the author tips us off. We don't actually have any reason to think that they're enemies in these first few verses. Verse 2 says, They came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the family and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God, and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Ezerhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. And they wanted to help build the temple. What could be more friendly, more ecumenical than that? They were eager to join in. After all, they worship this God too. They worship the God of the Israelites. If they could all work together, well, how much more quickly could the work be accomplished? And it would be a triumph of broad-minded inclusivity, everybody joining together as one in this community. It would forge a partnership between the returnees and the people of the land and um, that would be great. 
But the leaders of Israel immediately refused the partnership, didn't they? In verse 3. Now, why were the Israelites so narrow and so intolerant? Well, the key is what the enemies say. They say they had been worshiping God since Ezrahaddon, king of Assyria, had brought them there. And we can read about that settlement of these people in that area in 2 Kings, chapter 17, verses 24 to 41. And there we find that they were pagan imports to the area, uh, displaced from various parts of the Assyrian Empire, brought into Samaria to settle. And when they resettled in the region, they were worshipping the pagan gods that they had brought with them, the Baals and the Chemoshes and others. And that was creating problems for them in God's promised land. Lions were attacking them, so they begged a priest, please, will you come teach us how to worship the God of this land? And so they began to worship the Lord alongside their other pagan idols. They sacrificed to the Lord and to Baal. Well, they circumcised their children and they offered child sacrifices. They celebrated Passover and they took part in religious orgies. And so although they did worship the Lord in a sense, they didn't worship him as he demanded to be worshipped. Their syncretistic worship was actually an insult to the one true God. To allow them to partner in rebuilding God's temple, well, that would be to tacitly endorse this sort of syncretistic worship. It would be to compromise all that the temple stood for. And with that background, we can see why the people of God responded in the way that they did. Zerubbabel, Joshua, the rest of the heads of the family of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building this temple. We alone will build it for the Lord." the God of Israel, as King Cyrus commanded us. To partner with the people of the land would be to invite religious syncretism into the heart of Israel's worship and say, it's okay. And that's what had driven Israel out of the land in the first place, in the exile. There was no way they wanted to go back into exile, and so they couldn't allow that sort of thing back into temple worship. So I think the point is this. When the enemies of God try to infiltrate the people of God, then separation, narrowness, and intolerance is actually what faithfulness looks like among the people of God. Do you see? Friends, it is still a favorite tactic of God's enemies to try to infiltrate the church and compromise the people of God from within the church. There are great pressures today in the church to partner with those who claim to accept the gospel, but whose actions and doctrines actually deny the gospel, deny God's grace and truth. And we could point to a number of areas, but let me point you to just two. But there are many more than this. One area of syncretism that we see very clearly in the Western church is the importing of pagan ideas about marriage, gender, and sexuality into the church. 
very many Christians and churches and entire denominations accept the blending of Christian teaching with the teaching of the sexual revolution. Just as a recent example, two weeks ago, the Methodist Church in the UK approved same-sex marriages taking place within their churches around the country. It's one of the, the latest, but it's only the latest, in a long line of compromises on these issues that have taken place in the church. Well, first it was, well, don't be so narrow about divorce. And then it was, well, everybody is enjoying sex outside of marriage. How could you cause that to be an issue? And now this. Advocates for change to the church always emphasize that the issue is one of unity with fellow Christians. Now, these other Christians, they believe the same things that you do. They just practice in a, a slightly different way. It would be to our practical advantage to partner with them. Let's not make an issue of this, right? And they very well may mean it, but with those with discernment understand that the doctrines of uh, human sexuality come from false gods. What they're preaching comes from false gods, not from the true God of the Bible. Faithfulness demands separation from those who would mix false worship with true worship. Do you see? Every church that has embraced false worship over the last 60 years on this particular front has seen precipitous decline. They're destroying themselves and following after idols. Or another example, the syncretism seen when the Christian faith is mixed together with political ideologies. Whether it's those advocating for Christianity with Chinese characteristics, or it's those advocating for Christianity with American characteristics. Christians should not allow the precious truths of the gospel to be joined together with some political ideology. Certainly in the U.S., there are churches where the message from the pulpit would sound strangely like whatever uh, political party is in power in that area. And I'm sure there are likewise churches in Hong Kong, and I, I'm sure others here know far more than I do, where Jesus himself is said to be blue or, or yellow. But those who would put political ideologies at the same level as the gospel truths, they must not be tolerated. Just like Daniel, in, in the book of Daniel, he wouldn't uh, allow his faith to be co-opted by the king. Christians cannot allow our faith to be co-opted uh, by a political agenda. They cannot insult God by joining their faith to a party. And therefore, we need great discernment and, and great wisdom and great courage, actually, to stand against the infiltration of the enemy. God will not tolerate idolatry, and we mustn't compromise with it either. But that takes bravery. The returnees in Ezra's day, they were vulnerable. They could have used the support. They certainly didn't need uh, angry neighbors working against them. But they chose to stand up for their principles rather than to give in and do what was easier. 
whose help is more valuable, other people's or God's? Which do we need more of? And when it comes to us, the voices urging us to compromise with this false God or, or that false God or the other, well, will we trust the God of the Bible and obey him and refuse to partner with them? Or will we do what makes our lives easier? The example of the Israelite leaders tells us to make a stand and, and to leave the consequences to God. But that's not the end of the story because uh, when their attempts to infiltrate and to compromise the people of God uh, from the inside failed, well, their enemies showed their true colors and immediately began a campaign of intimidation. And that's what we see in verses 4 and 5. God's enemies will try to intimidate the people of God. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and to make them afraid to go on building. They bribed the officials to work against them and to frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Uh, the verbal forms uh, of this part of the text in Hebrew, they, they emphasize the continuous, ongoing nature of what they were doing. They kept discouraging them. They kept making them afraid. They kept bribing officials against them. Now, this was an organized campaign of opposition, using a variety of methods to attack them, both locally and at where the national and empire decisions were being made in Persia. Discouragement, using sneers and suggestions that made the people of God uh, want to just give up on the project, making them internally feel like this is not worth it. Then there was the fear, using threats to make them concerned for the health and well-being of themselves and their family. If you don't do what we want, you'll pay. And then there were the lies. Not content with uh, what they were already doing, they discredited and misrepresented them to the authorities. They paid off government officials to get what they wanted. And apparently, it was effective. The people of Judah stopped building. Verse 24 says, Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That's a gap of 16 years from the time they stopped to the time they picked it up again. No work on the temple was accomplished in that time. So effective was the campaign of intimidation that the people themselves, they started making excuses about why it just needs to be delayed a little longer. Let us build up our own houses and do the, uh, build up our own crops, and, and then we'll work on the house of the Lord. And that's the story that we get in the prophet Haggai. If you turn to that in your Bibles, you would see God is sending this prophet to them to say, now's the time to start up again. Stop delaying. Stop making excuses. And the point here, I think, is that intimidation is powerful. Are you feeling beaten down and wearied by life's hardships? Are you feeling discouraged and fearful at the sheer variety of issues that you have to face. 
Are you suffering under the burden of false accusations or willful misunderstanding? If you are, don't be surprised. There are people, and there are even spiritual forces at work in the world who view God as the enemy and his people as the target. But the question posed by Ezra 4 is, Will you allow the forces of intimidation to stop you from doing the work that God has called you to? Will you fear the opinions of men and women more than you fear God? Or will you, will you persevere in the work? Will you trust God to see you through the obstacles? Will you stand up against the enemy and all his organized opposition and say, no, I will not be diverted from God's purposes for my life, for my family, for my church? And maybe that sounds difficult. Maybe it sounds too difficult for you. And you know what? It is too difficult for you. The campaign of intimidation is too much for each one of us. By our own strength, we will not persevere in faith for long. But thanks be to God that however intense the fear and the discouragements are, Jesus is stronger. Jesus is stronger. In the earthly ministry that Jesus uh, had, he knew the sting of betrayal and opposition. He was utterly abandoned at the cross, and he said, Not my will, but yours be done, Father. But when he was raised, he promised his followers that none of us, not one of us, would have to face the kind of opposition he faced alone. That he would be with us to the end of the age. Jesus says over every Christian here, no one's going to pluck you out of my hand. He says, nothing can separate you from my love. He says, I will not lose even one of those that the Father has given me, but I will raise them up on the last day. So look to him. Keep plodding forward. In your school, in your office, in your friendships and your family life, keep persevering. Jesus is with you. Which brings us to the last uh, section of this letter. God's enemies will try to infiltrate, they will try to intimidate, and they will be relentless in their opposition. Verses 6 to 23 show us that. Ezra has already told us in verse 5 that this campaign of intimidation lasted uh, for the 16 years between Cyrus and Darius. But in verses 6 to 23, he tells us that their accusations uh, continued through the reign of Xerxes in verse 6 and through Artaxerxes in verse 7. And that means the conflict and the intimidation and the enmity that the enemies of God were showing for the people of God lasted for a hundred years. 
100 years, Ezra zooms into the future from the, the narrative line of the story and shows that um, when he was writing during the reign of Artaxerxes, they were trying to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And that's the story as it continues through the book of Nehemiah. And so he's writing in the present saying, uh, it's been going on for 100 years now, this opposition that we're facing. God's enemies have always been relentless. And then he comes back in verse 24 to the main narrative line. But from these verses, we learn more about the strategy of the Samaritan opposition. During the time of Darius, Xerxes, and especially Artaxerxes, there were several rebellions that broke out against the Persian Empire in that region. So Egypt uh, waged a, a rebellion against the Persians and, and fought through that corridor where Israel was. And so the Persians then put down their rebellion. And then one of the Persian generals that put down the rebellion of the Egyptians himself rebelled against the Persian Empire. He was a, a brother of the emperor. And he fought against the empire for a little while, and then he was reconciled. And so all these battles, all these rebellions, all this sedition was taking place in this corridor of Israel. And the Samaritans took advantage of that. The Samaritans laid the blame for all of that squarely at the feet of the people of Judah and Jerusalem. So in Ezra, in Nehemiah's day, long after the temple had been rebuilt, when God's people began to rebuild the city walls, it wasn't difficult to, convert, or to convince Artaxerxes that this is a troublesome people and they're plotting something here. You need to stop them. So why did Ezra include this bracketed historical tour of the lies of the enemy that had brought, uh, been brought against them? Why didn't he just go from verse 5 to verse 24? That would be the, the way that would make a more narrative sense. Well, I think it's to bolster the people of his day in the midst of their own persecution. It was as if he's saying to them, Look, men, I know there's a smear campaign going on against us, and I know it's getting you down, but the Samaritans... They've been doing this for a century now. And they're likely to keep it up for another century if we let them. There will never be an easier time to rebuild these walls. And so, grab your trowel, grab your sword, and get to work. It's not going to get easier from here. Let's show those Samaritans that we do not give up and we do not give in. We obey God. And Christian, maybe you need to hear that as well. Is life tough for you? Do you feel like everything is conspiring against you to keep you from giving your time and your energy and your attention to God? Well, that very well may be. In fact, it almost certainly is. But that has been the case since the church was formed, since actually the Garden of Eden. There has never been a time in church history when the opposition has let up and made things easy for Christians. In the early church, Christians were persecuted by uh, Jewish believers. 
because of the blasphemy that they were supposedly teaching. In Roman times, they were persecuted by the Romans in the empire uh, because they were thought to be atheists and immoral because they didn't worship the Roman gods. Then when the church became the official religion of the empire, well, there, there were all sorts of pressures to mingle political power with Christian truth and to take up pagan syncretism and so forth and so on to this very day. And now Christians are called bigots. And now Christians are charged with sedition and collusion in some places. And it's never going to stop, not until Christ returns. There was never a golden age when following Christ would be easy, but then he never promised that there would be. What Christ said is that those who lose their life will gain it. What Christ said is that if you deny yourself, take up your cross, then you can follow him. And he said many other difficult things. But he also said, take heart. I'm with you to the end of the age. So let's be realistic. Opposition has been at work against God's people from the Garden of Eden to this very day. So we should expect it as well. We may be surprised at its variety, at its intensity, but we shouldn't be surprised at the opposition. So let's be realistic. Let's be warned. What do the opponents of God want to do? They want to make us lose sight of God. They want us to stop obediently following God. They want us to get angry with him and turn our hearts and our lives away from him. But we can't let them. In the midst of opposition, keep obediently following, day after day, plodding on, trusting Jesus to bring you through. Lastly, have hope. It might take a while, but God will overcome all opposition. We said in the, in the Nicene Creed that Christ will reign. He will put all his enemies under his feet. So whatever you're facing, take heart. Keep pressing forward. We have all the hope in the world. And we will one day sit and eat at the victory feast. And we get a preview today. Wait you. Upon release from prison the second time, and troubled with the news of Christians abandoning their faith, due to persecution, began to proclaim the gospel in the public squares in the 1950s. Many church leaders criticized her and told her, you need to shut up. And she thanked them for their concern, but she repeated her refrain, God will take responsibility for me. Now, some pastors wanted her to be expelled from the Christian community. Others demanded that she yield to communist teachings. Just as it was after her baptism, the opposition that she faced came from within the church. After six years of this, in 1959, she applied for a permit to come to Hong Kong so that she could see her children again. Against great odds, her application was granted, 
But at the, the dock of Canton, uh, in the bag inspection, the officer there found a, a Bible in her bag, the Bible that she had carried with her throughout her life and ministry. Her permit could have been revoked on the spot, but the guard began to question her. He asked, why do you insist on being a Christian when so many are abandoning their faith? She replied, I cannot, as many have done, reject the grace of God to me. I cannot refuse his love to me, which is like the love of a father and a mother. It is my duty to love him, because the Lord Jesus loved me and gave his own life for me. I cannot but love him and also tell others about God's love for them. Therefore, Christians are to spread the gospel and to give it to others, she said. The guard waved her through. The Lord gave her 12 more years of ministry in Hong Kong and then in the U.S. before her death. The persecution for her ended in, at her death persecution for us will end then or when Christ comes. So let's pray for his help.